Texas. That's why I rest my head in Tennessee. Welcome everybody to Neurological Deep Dive. Thank you for tuning in. Appreciate you, appreciate you. All right, all right, all right. Hey, listen, guys, I got something new for you. Okay, maybe not new, but guess what? We got Dawn back. Dawn is going to be the devil slaying guy that we're going to need to come back to every now and again to find balance. People, take a listen and enjoy. Thank you for listening. Thanks for that introduction there, Ferret Fawns. My name's Dawn, and we're going to take a deep dive into this topic, and I've entitled it 30 Reasons to Believe the Bible. When it comes to religious truth or truth about God, many people trust their own heart. But in the Bible, Proverbs 28 verse 36, it says this, He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Others, when they're looking for Bible truth or truth about God, they're trusting the experts. Well, in Psalm 118 verse 8, it says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. And right after it says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. So when it comes to the matter of our soul, we can't afford to be mistaken. Would you walk on thin ice on a frozen lake? Would you take a drug prescribed by a quack physician? Would you drive a car with unreliable brakes? Would you believe a new discovery simply because a scientist called it science? It is not wise or safe to put our faith in something or someone that is untrustworthy. When it comes to the matter of our eternal destiny and our eternal well-being, none of us can afford to be deceived or misguided. It is imperative then that we place confidence in that which is reliable and dependable. The aim of this deep dive is to present some compelling evidence that confirm the Holy Scriptures to be inerrant, entirely trustworthy, verbally inspired by God, that means the words are inspired, and perfectly preserved. So. Here's reason number one. We're going to try to run through these quickly, but here's reason number one. John Wesley, who was a great uh, Christian leader in the 18th century, gave a strong argument proving that the Bible was uh, composed by God. He said this, The Bible must have been invented or inspired by only one of these three. Number one, either it was invented by good men or angels. Number two, or by bad men or devils. Number three, or by God. He continues, he says, quote, it could not be the invention of good men or angels, for they neither would nor could make a book and tell lies all the time they were, they were writing it, saying, thus saith the Lord, when it was in fact their own invention. Number two, it could not be the invention of bad men or, or devils, for they would not make a book which commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their own souls to hell to all eternity. Therefore, Wesley says, I draw this conclusion, that the Bible must be given by divine inspiration. That was number one. Number two, the Bible itself claims to be inspired by God. In other words, it claims to be infused, influenced, and directed by God. In 2 Timothy chapter 16, we read, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So in that verse, we see that all scripture is inspired. That means infused or influenced by God. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, we read, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in all time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake 
as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So these two verses claim that the Bible is the Word of God. Expressions such as the Lord said, the Lord spake, the Word of the Lord came are used thousands of times in the Bible. Either the Bible is what it claims to be, or it is the world's greatest fraud. There is actually no middle ground to take in this matter. Can you name any other book in this world that claims to be the Word of God very often and has been in existence in its completed form for about 2,000 years? I can't think of one. Number three, the Bible must be the Word of God because the necessities of mankind calls for a divine revelation. Man cannot honor God, live uprightly, and be happy apart from divine help guidance. Seeing we all need to hear from God, it is only reasonable to assume there must exist a written form of His words to us. Man's need for divine instruction requires a divine communication. Number four, by the reasonableness and purity of its precepts, we can infer that the Bible is God's book. All of the commands and principles and promises in the Bible have the most direct tendency to make people wise, holy, happy, and useful to each other. Here's uh, one verse in Proverbs 29, 15. It says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. We can see here the wisdom of God's word. Number five, the belief that there is an infinitely wise and benevolent creator demands that he speak to those he has created in his own image. The fact that God wants to bless us and fellowship with us calls for a divine revelation. God would be less than wise, good, and caring if he would not want to commune with those made in his likeness. Could you help and bless your child if you could not or would not communicate with him or her? The goodness of God, then, demands that he speak to his rational creatures. And how could his spoken words have been preserved if they had not been written down? And if God's words had not been written down and providentially preserved for us today, then how could we say he still loves us and still cares for us? We were created to know, love, hear, obey, serve and worship God. How could we do these things if God did not reveal himself, his laws, and his gospel to us, and then preserve that revelation? So in summary, God would be less than kind if he would not try to speak to us. Even as if there's somebody you don't want to talk to, usually it's a sign you don't care about them. And God is not like that. God cares about his creation, especially those created in his own image, which would be all of humanity. Number six, by the principles recorded in the Bible, miracles so astonishing that only God could have performed them, miracles done in the sight of thousands, Miracles attested to by many respected writers, by these we can safely assert the Bible to be true. Who can honestly deny the death and miraculous resurrection of Christ when we consider that nominal Christians all over the world still commemorate these events by the observance of the Lord's Day? observe the Lord's Day, we're observing Christ's broken body and shed blood. And also, when all people all over the world observe the Lord's Day. Uh, I met the Lord's Supper a while ago. The Lord's Supper, Christ's broken body and shed blood. And then the Lord's Day, the first day, which is the first day of the week. 
And that's when Christ rose from the dead. And we can also call this the Christian Sabbath. So miracles uh, prove that the Bible is the Word of God. There are many miracles uh, written in the Bible. And we know that some of them have to be true because of what we still do today. We're still observing the Lord's Supper and we're still observing the first day of the week as the day of rest. Number seven, the Bible must be the Word of God because all other sources of divine knowledge are insufficient. There are at least four ways that God speaks to people. First, God speaks through the things He created, such as the earth, sun, moon, stars. The things of nature tell us a lot about God. They tell of His might. None of us could make a star. They tell of His faithfulness. The sun rises faithfully every day and sets, sets faithfully every day. His loving kindness, the Bible tells us about that, because without the sun we'd all become weak and die. And his intelligence, the intricate design of the human eye alone, shows that is that God is a very intelligent designer. Secondly, God speaks to us through our conscience. And the conscience is the internal or innate sense of right and wrong that everybody has. Third, God speaks to us uh, by giving us the ability to reason on an intellectual and moral level. Because we have reason, we can know certain things about God. So God reveals himself through nature, conscience, and reason. These sources can help us to know to do good and to know something about God if they're properly used. However, they are not infallible and, in, and insufficient gods. If to put good use, I'm sorry, if put to good use, they tell us a lot about true religion, but they also tell us of our need for a more perfect revelation. The knowledge we get from nature, reason, and conscience makes us realize our need for an all-sufficient standard of truth. So the fourth way by which God speaks to us, and the most reliable way, and the most authoritative way that God speaks to us, is through His written words, the Bible. The words of the Holy Scriptures are inspired by God. They were inerrant when originally penned, and those inerrant words have been preserved for us in English in our authorized version of 1611, also known as the King James Version. Number eight. Things foretold many centuries ago show us that the Bible is God's work. God foretold that Ishmael's offspring would ascend to great influence in this world and be wild and warlike. And you can find that in Genesis 16, 17, also Genesis 25. The Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael, and they have been habitually wild, unruly or rough, and have constantly lived in a state of war in the past centuries. And that shows that what God foretold was true. Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, also said this, From henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. She said that 2,000 years ago. It's recorded in the Bible in Luke chapter 1, verse 48. And look around, and you will find that Catholics, Muslims, Christians, many, many, many people call Mary a blessed virgin, a blessed woman. So what she said 2,000 years ago is happening as we speak all over the world. So obviously what she said was truth. It was inspired by God. Number nine, Genesis verses, uh, or I should say chapters nine, uh, six through nine, says 
there was a worldwide flood wherein the mountains were covered with water. This is a quote from Walter Brown in a book that I have. It's called In the Beginning. And this is his quote. Every major mountain range on the earth contains fossils of sea life. End quote. I believe true science supports the Bible. The Bible said, this is number 10, the Bible said 2,700 years ago that the earth is an orb. This is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. It says this, It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. The word circle, if you look it up in a good English dictionary, means orb, sphere, globe. It was through the study and works of Christopher Columbus and Ferdinand Magellan that the earth was scientifically proven to be a globe. God's word knew long ago in 712 BC what scientists proved quite recently, which was in the 1400s, 1500s. Number 11. Scripture foretold that in the last days, people would be selfish, without natural affection, disobedient to parents, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, and despisers of those that are good. These human traits are far more common today than they were, say, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, or even, you could say, 50 or 60 years ago. Again, the Bible foretold this, and you're seeing that this is taking place right now. Uh, right after, and by the way, this was quoted in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and right in around verse 6 or 7, it says, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. People are studying, learning, but truth is becoming more and more rare as the days go by. And God foretold that this would happen. God is not causing this. He just foretold that this would happen. Just like uh, uh, people that study the weather, they can foretell the weather, but they're not causing the weather. They're just foretelling. God foretold these things would happen. And that means God is omniscient. God knows the future, and nobody else does like God does. Verse uh, 12, or number 12, I should say. The Bible said about 2,000 years ago that slavery and tyranny will exist during the end times. You will find slavery or slaves talked about in Revelation chapter 6, chapter 13, chapter 18, chapter 19, and chapter 20. If you look at some of those verses, uh, maybe I should give you the specific one. It would be Revelation 6, 15, 13, Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 to, 20, to 18, Revelation 18, verse 13, 19, verse 18, and 20, verse 4. There's mention or talk about slavery in those. Who can reasonably deny that the Western world is vast, moving toward enslavement to tyrannical governments and to international bankers? Worldwide economic enslavement by the Council on Foreign Relations, the international bankers, the Bilderbergs, and there's all kinds of groups that, that is underway right now as we speak. And this was foretold in the Bible, which would lead me to believe that the Bible was right and that the Bible is God's Word. And if it's God's Word on these points, it's God's Word on other points also. Verse, uh, number 13, the book of Revelation foretold that no man will be able to buy or sell except he have a mark in his hand or forehead. Already, it is next to impossible to conduct a merchandising business without the electronically scanned barcode. Could the mark of the beast be a microchip or tattoo implanted in the skin without which commercial transactions will be limited or impossible? The Bible prophesied all this long before computers and microchips were invented. Since only God knows the future, 
the Bible must be of God because the Bible prophesies and foretells some aspects of the future. Number 14, in about 1689 BC, it's a long time ago, Jacob said this, quote, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. That's found in Genesis 49, verse 10. This says that the Jews will never cease to have a scepter. A scepter is like a symbol of royal power and authority. So the Jews will never cease to have a scepter, nor a lawgiver, until Shiloh come. This was indeed fulfilled, because in 715 BC, it was written, Judah yet ruleth with God. That's found in Hosea chapter 11, verse 12. The Jews had their own nation and their body politic in 715 BC. According to many Jews and Christians, the word Shiloh in their mind means Messiah. And Messiah is mentioned again in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. When Christ was born, the Jews still had a body politic, even though they were under Roman rule. It was after Christ came and was rejected by the Jews and the Romans that the Jewish nation was dissolved and the Jewish people were dispersed from their land. The Jews lost their homeland and their government in 70 AD. That was about 40 years after Christ was crucified. And that happened just as predicted in Genesis chapter 49. This fulfilled prophecy helps to confirm that the Bible is true and inspired by God. Number 15. God promised that the Jews would never cease as a distinct and recognized people. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 35 to 37, we read that though the Jebusites, Hivites, would lose their identity, the Jews will not. It is said here that the Jewish race will outlast the sun, moon, and stars. In spite of the fact that the Jews are dispersed by most national leaders, God's promise that the Jewish race will never become extinct is still holding true, just as the Bible predicted Number 16, the 16th reason why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. At about 600 BC, God promised Israel, the descendants of Jacob, that though he would make a full end of all nations where he has driven them, he will not make a full end of them. In other words, God said the Jews will never lose their identity as a people group but many other people groups will lose their identity. When was the last time you talked to a Moabite or an Ammonite or an Edomite? These were the neighbors of the people of Israel long ago. Moab, Ammon, and Edom were all judged by God and cut off. But the Jews, though they were punished by God and chastised by him, they remain to this day as a recognized and distinct and prominent ethnic group. Since the Jews gave us the Bible, because I believe all of Scripture, or almost all of Scripture, was written and penned by Jewish men. Since the Jews gave us the Bible, and since the Jews gave us the Savior, Jesus Christ was 100% Jew from the tribe of Judah. Since the Jews gave us the Bible and the Savior, God is using their existence and their survival to speak to the whole world of his presence. The existence of Jews in this world is proof of God's existence. The survival of the Jews is corroborating evidence of the divine authorship of the scriptures. Number 17, God foretold over 2,600 years ago that the descendants of Judah, the Jews, would be restored to their homeland and that they shall inherit the land forever. That's a quote from the Bible. In 
And you can read about this in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21, Ezekiel 37, 25, Joel chapter 3, verse 20, Amos chapter 9, verse 15. I got this quote from somebody called the sign. Uh, it's from uh, James Melton. And he said this, quote, In 1948, Israel became an independent nation for the first time in over 2,500 years. In 1995, there were about 4 million Jews living in, his, in Israel. Now, according to what I heard the other day, somebody said uh, there, were, there are about 6 million Jews living in Israel. So God said they would be restored to their homeland. They are. They're there right now. Number 18. The Lord Jesus promised that the words of the Bible would last longer than heaven and earth. Quote, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. That's in Matthew 24, verse 35. Notice that it says, my words shall not pass away. According to Jesus, all the words of Scripture, not merely the general message shall be preserved and somebody told me the other day they said well uh, yeah that verse uh, my words shall not pass away well that's written where'd you get that in the bible well the bible has been passed on from hand to hand from word of mouth and how can you believe that that bible is still true today well first of all it was not passed on through word of mouth it was written down some of it was word of mouth, but when they heard somebody speak, they wrote down these things. So this was written. And plus, uh, when they were writing the Bible, they had a tremendous fear of God as they were writing, because they knew full well that if they would write down something wrong, that they would go to hell for it. So there was a fear of God in those who handled the scriptures. And um, so uh, this person said, how do you know that is true? Well, I said, even all the corrupt Bible versions that I'm aware of contain this verse. So, the corrupt Bible versions and also the true Bible version, which would be the King James, they all have this verse and most Bibles that I'm aware of have this verse in more than one place. You can find it in Luke also. I believe it's in Luke 16. You've got a similar verse. So far, this promise that God would preserve his word about 2,000 years ago has held true. Now, how can a book that condemns the actions of so many people, that talks so plainly about future divine punishment for the selfish, that is so old-fashioned, and that is so dogmatic and unbending in matters of religion and morals, how can a book like that continue to be the all-time best-selling book in the world? The answer? God promised it would endure forever. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. That's in Isaiah 40. Also in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25 it says but the word of the lord endureth forever if all of god's words are not now preserved then jesus was either mistaken or he spoke falsely and if jesus spoke falsehood or was mistaken in matters like this who can we trust in matters of salvation and eternity. Who can we trust if we can't trust Jesus? Number 19. Jesus foretold that the then standing Jewish temple would be destroyed. And that has happened. History records that it was destroyed by the army of Titus in 70 AD. About 40 years after the time of Christ. And it was destroyed contrary to the orders of Titus. Apparently, Titus ordered people not to destroy the temple. Well, it was destroyed anyway. God, or Jesus, foretold that it would be destroyed. Another fulfilled prophecy. Number 20. 
on the basis that so many principles of the Bible hold true in experience, we can safely conclude the Bible to be the Word of God. For instance, the Bible declares we shall reap what we sow. Who can deny that we all tend to reap the blessings of our good deeds and the consequences of our evil deeds? Now, in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 13, listen to the how uh, these principles are so uh, commonsensical um, and so true. Uh, I'm looking at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than, merchandise, than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than of gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, upon wisdom, that is. And happy is everyone that returneth, that retaineth her. So isn't that amazing that those verses hold true in experience? Number 21, the Bible describes the water cycle perhaps long before scientists have proven it to be true. And I am turning now to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7. It says this, All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. That is a very good description of the water site. So the Bible has no quarrel with true science. Number 22. The Bible is consistent with self-evident truth. The Bible states a self-evident truth when it says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's self-evident. That's the first verse, Genesis 1.1. It is absurd to think that it, or maybe I should say it this way, as it is absurd to think that a plane in the sky exists as a result of chance and natural occurrences, so is it absurd to think that the universe came about in the same way. It is self-evident that the vast universe, with all its complexities, and highly organized structures were designed by a very intelligent being. If there is a painting, there must be a painter. If there is a building, there must be a builder. If there's a composition, there must be a composer. If there's a creation, there must be a creator. These are all self-evident truths. How can nothing be derived or how can something be derived from nothing? It can't happen unless you have a miracle. And the whole creation is a miracle. God's creation is a miracle. Here's another self-evident truth. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, it says, the, the, it speaks of the little children, and that they have no knowledge between good and evil. Well, this is a self-evident truth. Children or Young children do not know the difference between good and evil. That's self-evident. Children are innocent. They're born innocent. And, um, and children really cannot sin because they don't know the difference between good and evil. Because the Bible defines sin as, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Well, a child does not know the difference between good and evil. This is a self-evident truth that's recorded in the Bible. Number 23, the Bible says that life was created by God, with which true science agrees. And he says that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. I'm going to read the verse here. Chapter 2, verse 7 says this, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. 
science agrees with um, one way is that we are well it says here that we're made out of the dust of the ground that means we're made of dirt and everything we eat to keep us alive comes right from the dirt whether it be plants or cows beef and chicken it all comes from the dirt the cows apparently they say uh, grass has a lot of protein but we can't digest grass but the cow can so therefore if you want protein eat beef and uh, and also it's a scientific fact that our bodies just return to dust after we die that's all consistent with scripture so um, it is a scientific fact called the law of biogenesis that nothing living can ever come from something non-living therefore it required a miracle from God to produce life that natural processes coupled with a lot of time could produce life has never been observed or proven so that concept is unscientific because it's never been seen it's never been no experiment has been done to show that uh, life can come through random chance it doesn't happen and through a lot of time time and chance produce nothing science means knowledge it can also mean knowledge derived from observation and experimentation some knowledge can be obtained through means other than through observation or experimentation such as that which is derived from testimony god has testified that he has created all living things and i can read it it's in isaiah chapter 45 verse 12 it says thus saith the lord i have made the earth and created man upon it spontaneous generation which really means life emerging from non-living matter has never been observed or scientifically proven to occur it is both unscientific and unscriptural to believe that life evolved from non-living matter the theory of organic evolution or macro evolution does not hold up in the face of thorough and unbiased investigation true science agrees with the holy scriptures verse or should i say number 24 the bible says that the life of the flesh is in the blood and this is found in leviticus 17 Leviticus 70, I'm going to turn there right now. Verse 14. Leviticus 17, verse 14 says this. For it is the life of the flesh. For it is the life of all flesh. The blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore, I said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh. For the life of the flesh is the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. And that's verse 14. And the one, the verse 11, before that it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. So the life of the flesh is in the blood so a spilled spilled blood speaks of draining out the life so this is recorded in the bible apparently i heard george washington they he was sick and apparently the, some of the doctors thought he had bad blood so they started to drain his blood well they actually ended up killing him you drain the blood you're, you're draining the life out of somebody and, uh, and then it says here not to drink the blood, the blood from the flesh. Well, obviously, those who drink blood, especially human blood, are following the devil. There's no question about that. Number 25. The first law of thermodynamics states that the total amount of energy in the universe, or in any isolated part of it, remains constant. This law states that although energy or matter 
can change form, it is not now being created or destroyed. In other words, natural processes cannot create matter nor destroy it. Therefore, matter had to be created in the past by some power outside of and independent of the natural universe. This first law of thermodynamics agrees with the Bible and not with the theory of cosmic evolution or macro evolution. Macro evolution would be a change from one species to another. That does not occur. Micro evolution may occur, and if you want to call it that, and all that is is variation within species. So you'll have variations of dogs and cats and people, and that's micro evolution, or you could say that's just a variation within species. That occurs, and that's scientific. So this law of thermodynamics verifies that mankind will never be able to deplete this earth of energy or matter. There will never be an energy shortage. The people who cause energy shortages are the super rich elite who control the money, the money masters, and the international bankers, and the people affiliated with people that are in high positions, such as Jesuits and Council on Foreign Relations people and the high-level Freemasons. These people are the ones that are controlling energy. And they're trying to tell us sometimes that there's a shortage. Well, no, um, the shortages are oftentimes caused by them on purpose. Number 26, archaeology supports the Bible. The definition of archaeology is this. It is the study or the science of ancient things or ancient times or the study of antiquity. That's archaeology. That supports the Bible. Fossils verify the Noahic flood as recorded in Genesis 6 through 9. Quote, this is from uh, Walter Brown. Many fossils, such as fossilized jellyfish, show by the details of their soft, fleshy portions that they were buried rapidly before they could decay. That's from Walter Brown. The many extant fossils give evidence of a rapid death and burial of animals and plants caused by something like a worldwide flood. Fossils do not give evidence of macro evolution or of a slow change among species. But rather, the fossils help support the idea of a global flood or some kind of big catastrophe, which a global flood seems to be. And it also supports the idea that the Bible is reliable. Number 27. There is much archaeological evidence indicating that Noah's Ark probably exists. Quote from Walter Brown again. Ancient historians such as Josephus and Barossus, I think that's his name, mentioned in their writings that the Ark existed. These are very ancient historians. Marco Polo apparently also stated that the Ark was reported to be on a mountain in greater Armenia. Dr. Brown documents many credible stories in which people claim to have seen Noah's Ark. Number 28, the fact that Christianity tends to enhance the condition of mankind speaks in favor of the Bible. The lands or those lands where the Bible is respected and followed, the morals and the living conditions of the people tend to improve. Lands that are governed by men who rule in accordance to biblical laws and principles are blessed with a high degree of freedom, peace, happiness, divine favor, and well-being. The general superiority and prosperity of America in her past is proof of this assertion. The Bible says in Psalm 33 verse 12, Blessed 
is the nation whose God is the Lord. When the Bible was taught in our schools in America, our culture was 10 times, maybe 100 times better than it is now. And that's why I am all for putting the Bible in our schools because you cannot have education apart from the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and, and instruction. I think I read that verse wrong, but anyway, it's in uh, Proverbs chapter 1. Number 29. Some of the greatest, wisest, and most virtuous men and women who ever lived were strong Bible believers. Let me name you. Let me name some of them. Jesus. Well, if the Bible is good enough for Jesus, I think it's good enough for me. If Jesus relied upon the Bible and and spoke of it as if it was the Word of God, then I think I ought to do that too. So he believes the Bible is is the Word of God. Abraham, uh, the first Jew, the first one who produced the Jews, he was the father of the Jewish race or the father of, of the Israelites. Sarah, that would be his wife, strong Bible believer. Isaac, that would be the son of Abraham. Jacob, the son of Isaac. Joseph would be the son, one of the sons of Jacob. These were all uh, God-fearing people who followed the scriptures. Moses, of course, he wrote, uh, he penned, apparently, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. David, King David, I'm referring to, he wrote the Psalms and other other portions, I believe, um, but definitely the Psalms. Job, he was a God-fearing man. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was a God-fearing woman. Peter, James, and John, these were the apostles, the, basically the inner circle that walked closest to Christ. Paul, the apostle, who was converted while on the road to Damascus, he was a strong Bible believer. William Tyndale, the one who wrote one of the first English Bibles, who was burnt at the stake for doing so, by the way, by Rome. John Bunyan, uh, he wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. It was America's best-selling book in the early times of America. And uh, it's a very good uh, uh, book that teaches how to live for God. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, strong Bible believer. Jonathan Edwards, an early revivalist in America. Uh, George Washington, he was a strong Bible believer, according to uh, some great men that have said so. John Adams, a great man of God. Um, Noah Webster, Stonewall Jackson. Noah Webster is the one who wrote the first Webster's Dictionary. And if you can get a copy of that, it'd be probably the best book next to the Bible if you want to understand the Bible because he quotes the Bible many times and he defines terms found in the Bible. It's probably the most valuable book you can have. And of course, it was written in 1828 and the powers that be don't like you to read the Bible, the King James, or to read Noah Webster's Dictionary. So uh, they try to make that obsolete. They're trying to remove it from the, the public. But if you can get your hands on it, it'd be great. Uh, another great man of God was Charles G. Finney, a revivalist in the 1800s. James Madison, it is said of him that he was an avid Bible reader. reader. Uh, Benjamin Rush, he called for the Bible to be put in all public schools. They were not government schools at the time. They were public schools. In other words, the public controlled the schools. Moms and dads were the ones in authority in the schools in early America. And Benjamin Rush called for the Bible to be the main and most important textbook in the, in the early school uh, schools. George Whitfield, another great revivalist. All these people were Bible believers. And many of these that I quoted were the foundations or, uh, yeah, they, they're the founding fathers of America. You could even say the apostles had a tremendous uh, impact 
on the beginning of the Ameri of the United States of America. Number 30, this is the last reason why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. No book in this world is more balanced and non-contradictory than the Bible. The Bible extends mercy without diminishing justice. It promotes liberty without destroying or law and order. It teaches love without sacrificing truth or justice. It offers saving grace without weakening the force of moral law. The Bible is not oxymoronic, as most people are in their thinking. An oxymoron is a statement, it's a, it's a combination of contradictory or incongruous words. Words like cruel kindness, that's an oxymoronic statement. Or carnal Christian, there's no such thing. If you're carnal, you're not a follower of Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're not going to be carnal. So there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. These are oxymorons. And the Bible is not that way. It's not contradictory. So, based upon these above, these reasons that I just gave, 30 reasons, the Bible then ought to be trusted, obeyed, put into practice, and read more so than anything else you read. It's the most important book in the world. It's still the best-selling book in the world from what I hear. I want to leave you with a good verse. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. It says this, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. May God help you to be born again, to commit your life to Christ and to his words so that you will have eternal life. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Neurological Deep Dive. Hope you found inspiration in that. If not, listen to it again.